I'll keep staging until I, until I'm 80, 90 years old. I, food is such a beautiful thing. It's like languages. You're never gonna learn every language in the world, just like you won't learn every single dish in the world. So, um, I'm so eager to learn absolutely everything about food. Today on Dirty Linen, we are heading all the way over to New York City to talk to Chef Buddha Lowe. I've known Buddha um, for ages since he lived in Melbourne, and it's been a real thrill to watch his star continue to shine. Uh, Buddha at the moment is starring on Top Chef, uh, a fantastic uh, dynamic cooking show. This season's in Houston, Texas. Buddha, welcome to Dirty Linen. Thank you, Danny. Look forward to being on it. <laughs> well, it's happening. Here you are. Um, yeah, as I said, you know, I've been so excited to watch all the different things that you've done. Um, but let's start with what you're doing now on Top Chef, which is screening here on Hey You. Uh, tell us about the experience of being on the show. So being on a competition, especially on TV, has always been um, one of my dreams. And unfortunately in Australia, we don't actually have a professional cooking show uh, competition. So being on one is absolutely incredible. It's something that I've always wanted to do. Uh, it's not so much for uh, the, the fame or any of the other sort of stuff, the prizes. It's purely just because I love cooking. And it's one of the best things to do is just be, like this side of cooking is actually really fun. The, the comp- competition side where all you have to do is think about the food, whereas in a normal restaurant life, you would have to think about food cost. How am I going to get people working Instagram? How am I going to get people to this, you know, this night market or something like that? Whereas when you're into these, these challenges, everything's organized for you. So it's, it's, a, it's like a dream. All I have to do is rock up and cook. So um, it's, it's great being able to just think about food and not have to think about all the other different uh, surfaces that you have to cover just to get, make a successful cooking operation happen. What's the standard like? I mean, is it is it intimidating? I mean, and you've got some, you know, incredible uh, guest judges and hosts, Tom Calicchio. Um, is there's just yeah, so many big names there. Like, what's it like you know, in in that arena? Yeah, the, the standard the standard's huge. Is we have you know, some big name chefs, and what's great about the cooking competition is that they don't just highlight Michelin background chefs. Where you know, you have some people that are. Uh, more uh, that have a lot of uh, strength from the south, southern cooking, and then you got you know a chef like Luke that's actually been at Noma for the last eight years, uh, and Monique that's also worked at uh, Geranium in Copenhagen and um, Le Doyen in Paris. So it, it's a huge variety and range of res- of chefs that have a lot of huge skills and it's um what's what's great about the challenges is that it doesn't it's not a michelin star challenge every time you could be asked to do something very simple and basic and sometimes in this industry especially in the michelin star category industry not all chefs have that skill to be able to produce a nice staff meal or family meal that we call it here um or or something very simple some simple cookery some people just go through these michelin star ranks and they know how to sear a perfect foie gras or you know pan fry or sous vide that fish perfectly but they won't know how to make a real authentic curry or something like that so that's what's very interesting about this sort of 
cooking competition. Um, I saw on the showreel like uh, there was a bit of an alligator challenge. Can you tell us about that? Unfortunately, Danny, that episode hasn't aired yet, so I can't talk say too much about the alligator. The mystery, the alligator mystery remains. Yeah, if you have to tune tune into Hey You uh, (laughs) and watch that episode and find out. No worries. Um, so I mean, it's interesting. You know, I one of my earliest encounters with you was at a young chef competition here in Melbourne. I mean. What's what place has competitions um, played in your career? Competitions have been huge. I actually started doing that when I was uh, in high school, and I started doing these little competitions that we do at the shopping center in Cairns, um, and uh, there were like dessert static display, uh, cooking a fish, and like I remember all these dishes, and they were like your real like the the looking back at it and where it is where I'm at where I'm at now I'm very happy of how far I've came but the competitions have they played a huge critical role in my life uh, just because and and career because that really ignited a lot of creativity into um into the way that I cook and doing it at such a young age I think I just grow, grew this sort of like I don't really um I don't really care if I win or lose. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to keep entering it. And I've definitely lost a lot and won a few, but there's only one winner, winner in it at the end of the day. So um, I learned tremendous amounts. Of, even one of the, one of the uh, challenges that I won, I won a uh, scholarship to go to, uh, to France. It wasn't Paris, it's Paris now, but it was a Thierry Marx scholarship uh, that – runs in melbourne every year and an apprentice gets to go to uh france and work at a two michelin star restaurant that's something that i got to do and it that was such an eye-opener into uh michelin star restaurants my first michelin star restaurant that i worked in and i was 17 years old i was in the middle of france uh in poyac so it wasn't even so you go to france you go to paris and then you get on a train, then you have to go four hours to Bordeaux, and then you have to get even a, another train from Bordeaux, to one and a half hours into this vineyard that's uh, that's uh, a small, small town of probably about eight hundred people, and no one speaks English. So that was definitely out of my comfort zone, but it was so rewarding, and it definitely impacted my life and made me really just um, signify that I want to do this uh, going forward. What kinds of things did you see there? Was it the produce? Was it the technique? Was it the way the kitchen worked? You know, what what really lit you up? Oh, it was just the the culture of it, the the uh, the passion that the chefs had. Like it was, we we'd start at seven thirty in the morning and finish at twelve. But some people might go, oh, that's a lot, it's too much. But I was in there and I was just like in awe, and I loved it all, and I loved that sort of drive, and that was a sort of uh, sort of place that I wanted to be surrounded, um, be in and the people that I want to be surrounded by. So I really st- strived in those sort of areas. Yeah, there was a lot of things that happened um, <laughs> that's very old school French. You know, there was a little, lot of yelling, maybe even a little bit of slight bit of racism here and there. But um, it, it was, I, I loved every single moment of it. And the yeah, like I said, the produce, uh, like you said before, the produce was just outstanding. Something that you'd like never see before. The strawberries are treated like these VIP strawberries where they have, when they come in, they come in these little boxes and then we have to lay them out 
individually on these trays, making sure there's gaps so they're not touching each other. It's uh, it's a it's a complete different world. But I've worked in these areas of uh, different parts of the world. I've been to Singapore. I've been uh, I staged in Singapore. I staged in Copenhagen, France. Worked in London. Worked in New York. And going through that, it's just what what's amazing about it is that everyone's got all these different ways of uh, the, of the culture of the, of the, of the kitchen. So it's amazing to see what I can try and come up with, not um, seeing all these different cultures and seeing what sort of culture I'd like to bring into my own. Yeah. It's really interesting, you know, looking at, at your career, you know, you started at your family's restaurant in North Queensland, you cooked in Melbourne at restaurants, including Hare and Grace and Mateo's. You were a head chef at Hare and Grace when you were just 19, you know, went over to London, worked at restaurant Gordon Ramsay, worked, went over and starched and got a job at 11 Madison Park. Now you're head chef at Marquis Caviar and Huso, uh, another like, yeah, fine dining restaurants in New York City. When I, when I look at everything that you've done, it just feels like you're the absolute paragon of that guy who takes every opportunity that you can from a career in the kitchen. It's, you know, everything that people say about the good things about being a chef, you know, you get to travel, you get to try different things. You know, the world is, is literally your oyster. It just feels like you've been, you just seized every opportunity. Is that how it's felt like for you? Uh, 100%. Ever since I uh, fell in love with cooking and watched my dad when I was 12 years old, I just kind of just followed whatever my passion felt like. It, I, I, had always had a direction on where I was going to go, but it's always happened in the moment. Uh, so uh, I knew the moment that I needed to leave um, Mateo's to go work with Raymond because I knew that I wanted to work for Raymond. So it's just, I don't know why or how, it just, in my mind, it made a lot of sense to me. And uh, moving to New York was one of those uh, opportunities and my visa was about to expire and I was like, well, what do I do? Do I go back to Australia or do I try and see if I can get a person, uh, an employer to sponsor me so I can stay into the country? And then those sort of opportunities obviously led to where I'm now and, you know, I got um, I got asked to be on Top Chef and I got to compete on that. So it's just another one of those things where it just, it feels like a bit of luck, but it's also a lot of um persistence as well. Yeah. And obviously you've had important mentors during your career that have really seen something in you. I mean, I remember Raymond Capaldi, you know, a European trained chef here, you know, a uh, bit of an old school guy in the kitchen from my understanding, watching him across the past, like, you know, it doesn't, um, doesn't hold back if he feels like something needs to be said. But I also remember how almost like, you know, fatherly he was towards you and and quite tender and obviously really saw something special in you. I mean, how do you, how you said you make those decisions in the moment or things just feel right. Like how do you, how do you, how have you made those decisions? Like what, how do you know when something feels right? Well, <laughs> when, when I first encountered Raymond, um, it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't seem like that was going to be the path that I was going to go. Uh, it was a terrible night. Um, I got yelled at a lot and, uh, and I was working at Mateo's and, and eventually, you know, I, I said to myself, I'm going to wipe this off and I'm going to come back in tomorrow and I'm going to go twice as hard. And that's what I did. And I think Raymond saw that on in me and he turned around one day and, 
he said, if you go with, if you come with me, you're going to go far. And everyone who was in the kitchen, especially the apprentices, they all just almost kind of snapped their necks because they all turned around and was like, well, who's this guy? <laughs> Out of all the people in the kitchen, you want to take this guy with you? Like this guy's going down every day. And I think Raymond saw something in there and I, didn't know the severity of it, of how huge of a chef he was and, and, and is. And I knew that I had to learn under the, under him. And thank, um, thankfully I did because I learned a lot from Raymond. Uh, a lot of people can see him at the molecular forefront at that time, but the, the he, he was very classically trained and he drilled that into me, not just the, the way he worked, it was the way that he w- w- was to cook. And I think I learned a lot of uh, fundamentals and foundations of cooking through him. Mm. It's really interesting seeing what Raymond's doing now. He's got Wonder Pies and um, Baked Tico. So he's really taken those, I guess, those foundations that he himself has and turned them into something completely different, much more mass market and accessible Um it's. I think he sort of looks back on some of those hair and grace dishes, which were very refined. There was, you know, quite a little bit of quite a bit of kitchen trickery. I think, you know, he's left those things behind, but I guess he's instilled in people such as yourself the skills and the wherewithal to take some of those techniques and that approach onward. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's a it's a beauty of the industry is that you can take in you can take your career into a sort of place that you want it to be uh, especially at the time of your life of course we don't i don't expect raymond to be in that sort of environment for the rest of his life and uh, you know he's he's um, he's a lot happier now and i'm i'm really happy for what he's doing we we keep in touch you know he like i said he like you said before he is a fatherly figure when when something's going down he's the first person to call and he'll call me constantly and and make sure that i'm all good and it'll be like times of like hair and grace where I'd be finishing maybe three hours after he's completely done anything to do with the kitchen and he'll just wait for me in the office to go drive me from the CBD to Carlton because he just wants to drop me off at home. <laughs> so it's a lot of these sort of things that he did for me that really kind of nurtured me and looked after me and which was really amazing to be a part of because I don't think a lot of people get that opportunity. He's, he's such a... Um, heavy hitter in the culinary world and the fact that you have someone like that of that caliber really taking interest in and nurturing you is something that you don't really get nowadays you have huge chefs uh like i like i can say in, in new york like thomas keller daniel balloud maybe even eric repair I, I don't really know to that extent but i can imagine that most of the chefs aren't really going to be learned or trained underneath these sort of chefs who have their names on the door. It's going to be a CDC. For example, my my training was at restaurant Gordon Ramsay, but that was under Claire Smith and Matt Abe. So I never, as as much as I like to say that I worked for Gordon Ramsay, I really didn't. I worked for Claire. I worked for Matt. And um, that's that's a very special moment that they have because they have actually worked with Gordon um. And that's why Matt and Clara were where they are at today because of working directly underneath this chef. So I was very lucky to work for Raymond for sure.
I know you've got really strong views on kitchen culture and it's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, some of the long hours uh, that you've experienced, you know, racial uh, abuse um, that you have been yelled at a lot and yet you've been able to turn those things into, I guess, fuel for your own fire. But do you think it's okay that people are treated like that in kitchens? No, I don't. I don't think it's okay. Like it was never okay, but for some reason it was okay, and it was really okay. Like even <laughs> even the generations before, and that sort of culture is not sustainable. The, I, still, even with like the um, the way that it is now, a lot of things aren't sustainable um, in the kitchen and in the hospitality world. So, no, I would moving forward. I don't take on those traits. Um, I don't believe people should be working those sort of hours and I don't believe people should be treated like that either. And uh, at the end of the day, I'd like to put it out there. No one really put a gun to your head and said, you need to open a restaurant. So if you can't afford your cooks and if you, and you need them to work, you know, for free um, over time and, you know, abuse them, like not, don't do it. Just don't open a restaurant. No one told you that you had to, so don't don't do it. So moving forward, the advice for like people that want to open a restaurant, do everything properly. And I know it's hard to, it's easier to say than to do than do, but that's the reality of it. No one forced you to open a restaurant, so um, so just make sure you do everything properly. And that's just something that I would love to, that that I'm gonna I'm gonna do. And I I don't own a restaurant yet. But uh, that's something that I'm going to make sure that I do if I ever open a restaurant in the future is just to make sure that it's done correctly. Mm. I mean, how do you reconcile, you know, proper working conditions with that excellence and that deep learning that you've done, you know, which partly at least has to do with uh, the extreme conditions that you worked under? So, I found that when I worked in these extreme conditions, there was a lot of things that, and and that could have been done smart, more smarter. Like I feel like most of the stuff that I did when I was in training, there was a lot of things that were thrown out and made fresh every day. Like that, especially in these real three Michelin star restaurants, I feel like a sauce can at least have, you know, a little bit more shelf life than one day. Um, I feel that also that the um, that the industry not only has to um, mold to this sort of way of um, I'm just trying to structure the words is we have to mold into this sort of new place that we're going to. For example, mm. wage is high. We need to cut down on wage, but how do we cut down on that? Well, we're going to do things that. You know, if we look back at the restaurants that were in the 2000s, there's probably about 15 to 20 garnishes on a plate. No one told you to put 15 to 20 garnishes on there. And that is like one full employee just making those garnishes. Nowadays, food's a lot more simple and minimalistic, and you can make more impact um, by taking those steps. So it's all about changing the cuisine and the style of how we used to cook. Because if we look back when in the old school days where French was all the hype and we're doing 
15 dots and running our skewer and making towers of everything that doesn't exist anymore because we can't we can't afford to have that sort of labor um into into one ditch so i think in the in the future the, the moving forward is just that we don't we have to change and cuisine is going to change but no matter what we do it's going to be great anyway so it's all about working smarter not harder and also making sure that we're doing food that's capable for the team i think my for example my our restaurant in port douglas it's a chinese restaurant it had maybe about 70 different items my dad passed away and now it's probably down to maybe 25 items that was not sustainable for my dad. He worked seven days. He would prep, or you know, from ten o'clock in the morning and finish at eleven o'clock at night. Seven days a week, three hundred sixty-five days a year. That's that's not how it should work anymore. It, he he had to cut down the menu, which they did, and now it operates much more easier because now we just take out the pop. We make sure that we have all the popular items on there, and now it functions easier my mom and my brother have two days off a week which is like the first time for them and maybe about 15 plus years so it's the it's the way forward yeah i love what you're saying buddha it's so uh it's makes me it's so thought-provoking i mean it really makes me think that you know you look you can look at a plate of food and and have a you know one day is this plate ethical like you know is each dot you know representing someone and someone's labor that perhaps could have been used in a different way and I guess you know I, I guess we look at plates of food and we think you know we think about nose to tail or root to tip or whatever it is but I get, think we can also look at plates of food and think about labor and I guess ego as well it's like how how possible is it for chefs to still be working at an extremely high level and to be very satisfied and to and to feel creative, but to um, I guess yes, yeah, strip it back and think about the different kinds of stories that you can tell with a dish. Exactly. Yeah, you really highlighted it. Yep. Yeah, no, so interesting. Well, tell me how it works at Marky's, um, you know, which is caviar focused. Like, is, are you sort of, are you, even though that's a luxury ingredient, is that somewhere on the path to where you think things should go? So, well, yes, in a way, because I'm, I'm constantly working with luxurious ingredients. Not only am I only using caviar, but I'm also using, you know, some of the best pork in the world, some, you know, tuna from Spain, some of the best tuna that's, you know, hand spiked in, in the water, like, it, and I'm using caviar. And I feel like my dishes are, are really simple, yet I just focus on presentation and technique rather than trying to do too much to it, because that's not what you want to do. And I think caviar is like this perfect ingredient where you don't have to, you don't want to outshine it. So when you work with quality produce, it's kind of like the Italian mentality of cooking. You don't have to do too much to it. And that's what I do. So in that sense, at Marquis, we do 12 people a night, uh, four nights a week. We do one day of prep. And I used to do all this by myself. We actually hired a cook, um, not too long ago, so I can do other other things, but it's all managed by one cook. We do eight courses a, um, eight courses a night. The menu changes seasonally, and they're able to do all this by themselves and and pull it off. Do the whole service by themselves as well. So 
it's all about putting these uh, these smart these smarter techniques into place to make sure that um, you don't you don't need extra hands because we're in New York and to find extra space in kitchen or the dining room is very hard. So you have to get creative and really understand and um, be thoughtful about how you can manipulate that space into something that you want. And I found that the last couple of years that I'm able to do that quite easily. Interesting, because I guess, I mean, a lot of Australian kitchens are small as well, but perhaps space isn't at such a premium as it is in a city like New York. I also wonder, you know, customers obviously have to come to the party and be prepared to pay the true cost of dining. Can you compare New York to Australia in that sense? Yeah, of course. Um, New York is of course, more expensive than Australia. Um, my, my menu runs about $225 per person, and that's not including gratuity. Uh, gratuity is 20% on top, and then tax as well on top of that. So you're almost looking about $300 American per person. Um, but in my restaurant, it's a little bit different. We are using caviar, and caviar is not the cheapest ingredient, especially to do with eight courses. So at the end of the day, it, it is a bit of a bargain. But um, in New York, yeah, I think the dining scene here is um, is so great. And there's a lot of people that want to come here and eat. And I think, yeah, the price tag does come with it. The, the, everything to try and execute in New York is very hard. Um, labor cost, rent, rent is huge here. Uh, the produce, just because it's so hard for just purveyors to get around New York. Um, it's very hard to get things that are affordable. So the prices go up. And I think for most part, people are okay with it. But um, I'm, in, I'm in a bit of a lucky position because I only do uh, 50 covers a week. So most most um, for the most part, my, rest, uh, my dining room is booked out uh, because out of the whole of New York, there's surely going to be 50 people that would like to spend an anniversary or a special dinner or a special occasion. So I'm, I'm quite lucky with that. But for the most part, yeah, I think most people um, get on with uh, paying, paying, for the, paying for what the price is, yeah. Mm. What's a dish that you're loving making at the moment? Um, to, to, it's like for, for me, I, I think all the dishes that I do, they're – I, I fall in love with. I don't. I don't really put a dish that I um, don't love. Uh, but I would say the one thing that probably comes up to mind is that I've I've I haven't done a lot of um, Mexican cookery, and I've I've just did a uh, tres leches on the menu, and it's a cake that's been soaked in three different kinds of milk, and I find that very interesting with the caviar and it looks stunning as well it, it's for the i found this uh mold that makes it look like the shape of a rose so it's like a white rose and and it's heavily inspired by spring and the uh, caviar works really well with the with the milk which is a kind of like the dairy aspect of how you would have caviar like creme fraiche and then the cake being more like the blini pancake and then there's a dulce de leche which uh brings that salted caramel aspect when it's having when it's eaten with the caviar so it's a it's a simple dish um very easy um very simply presented but yeah i, I think that dish does come to mind 
that's just blown my mind because like it's sweet but it's with caviar but the way that you describe it I guess it does make sense because we do love a little bit of salt to liven up a sweet dish and I guess yeah the whole you know popping pearl kind of thing that we've seen that on dessert so I guess it I can yeah it's definitely intriguing um yeah I would love to I would love to taste that how how interesting yeah, and that's what's really I'm really lucky with. I, I get to work with this pro- a quality product, and Marquis is a purveyor of fine food, so they deal with all the best ingredients in the world. So I'm really lucky to be a part of that. Woody, you said that being on a cooking competition show was one of your dreams. Have you got any unfulfilled other dreams that you can tell us about? <laughs> yeah, I want to. Um, it's kind of like why I'm still here. <laughs> I want to get three Michelin stars. So there's no Michelin stars in um, in Australia, and it's something that I really want to achieve in my lifetime. Wow, you are aiming high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm here, and um, I'm I'm trying to get make that dream happen. And I feel like whenever there's a goal that's fulfilled, there's always another goal after it. So I'm at this part of my life where I'd like to um, continue whatever is happening i think i think i'm on the right path right now wow that's really really good to hear i love hearing that 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 confidence and optimism in your voice buddha what advice would you give to young chefs who are who are starting out or in the early stage of their careers because um there's one thing that i was taught is just that you've got like four things that you really need as a chef and passions um commitment dedication and those are the three. And if you have all three of them, you'll have the last one, which is skill. And um, those four things will really make a great chef. Those are like the four qualities that you really, really need to get through it. And if you have all those, then the world's your oyster. Um, if you're constantly eager to learn, don't don't neg- don't neglect any information. Like I've, I've said this before, I'll, I'll keep staging until I until I'm 80, 90 years old. I food is such a beautiful thing it's like languages you're never gonna learn every language in the world just like you won't learn every single dish in the world so um i'm so you get to learn absolutely everything about food and i hope that whoever's deciding to join this this industry hopefully they enjoy the ride and and tr- tr- uh, hopefully this industry can make the turn for the better and i hope in a uh and so when when people are trying to get into this career they're nurtured and 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 they love and they love what they do because that's what's the most important thing is that if you love what you do especially where you work um you're gonna have a great life (laughs) Mm. and it sounds like you know it's perhaps not to put words into your mouth but it sounds like you also believe people shouldn't be afraid to make big changes oh absolutely not i think the number one thing that i learned from gordon ramsay is to always make sure that you're in, um, out of your comfort zone. That's where you're going to learn the most. So, yeah, I encourage everyone to do it for sure. It sounds kind of scary but also exciting. <laughs> yes, it is. But once you know the results um, from being out of your comfort zone, like I don't – every single restaurant that I've been in, I've wanted to quit and I just overcame it and, you know, found out that, you know, the, all those sort of things that people, you, you'd find, oh, that's a bit offensive. I mean, they're doing it because they they care for you. I find that the people that aren't really trying to, that aren't getting like the, the training, the, 
I, I feel like the most most of the mentors have kind of given up a bit. So it's it's all about taking everything on board and keep keep your ears open and learn a lot and yeah, just don't worry about making it big so early. I've I did that and I it was kind of like a not a regret, but it was kind of an eye opener, especially when I was at Mateo's. I was head chef and there's a lot of things happening and it was really good. I was getting awards and, you know, we'll make it onto all these like great lists and stuff like that. And I was just, I was 25 and I was like, I need to go back into another kitchen and learn again. So I think the thing is to not try and rush it because if you want to be this head chef at 21, 24, it's like, well, you can do that for the rest of your life, but being on the station and learning how to cook or working for great chefs, it's not a, it's not a very long time. If you look at it, most chefs become head chefs around 30. And if you start your apprenticeship at 18, you've only really been cooking for 12 years. And those are, and all those sort of things that you learn in those 12 years are going to be the things that you carry on for the rest of your life. So if you're going to only be cooking for uh, four years and then become a head chef at 22, well, that's all you got. So don't, don't try and rush it and um, make sure that you put in the work and try and try and learn as much as you can before you get into a higher position. Love it, Buddha. Um, so great to catch up with you. Congratulations on all that you've achieved and all that you will continue to do. Um, good luck with Top Chef. <laughs> Wrangle that alligator. Thanks, Danny. And, um, yeah, we'll- yeah, I hope you guys stay tuned to it. I need some Australian support, that's for sure. For sure. <laughs> uh, we'll, 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 keep, we'll keep an eye on you and stay in touch. Great to chat. Thanks, Danny. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is